Hello, everybody. People are starting to join, which is great. This is Natasha Duarte, and I am here with Dr. Kristen Allen and our guests for this webinar on recognizing and addressing addictions in the time of COVID-19. Just a couple housekeeping notes. This webinar is being recorded. If you have questions, you can type them into the chat box as we go along. I will be looking for that. And when we stop for questions, I will be um, reading those out so you all can um, stay muted. Also, this uh, webinar is being provided for educational purposes only, so nothing here constitutes specific advice or treatment plans, uh, and we encourage you to seek your local providers if you need something more individualized for yourself. Uh, and with that, I'm gonna pass it over to Dr. Kristen Allen. Thank you. So I'm so excited to have such an amazing uh, group. When Natasha and I decided to start adding guests to the Connectors meeting, I thought of uh, these three lovely women and was unsure if they would join. And they all said yes. And, and so I'm just so excited. So the purpose for today is to help people recognize it. It, it, and get some information on if they think that they're starting to develop uh, an addiction because this time of isolation is a great time for the brain to wire in some addictive patterns. And so I've asked our guests to bring three different perspectives. And so we'll talk about those three different um, per perspectives or, or, uh, and tools towards addictions. Um, but I'm going to uh, have them introduce themselves and their title just really briefly and then give a little information about why I'm excited for them just so you can hear their voices. And then they're going to do a little longer five-minute summary uh, for their unique perspective. I want to say this is not their only perspective. They've just offered to hold this perspective for this meeting. Our first guest that I would really like to introduce is Ambrosia Ebhart from Spokane. And so what, what's your current position that you want people to know? And I am the Spokane Parents for Parents Program Manager and transitioning to a new role as the Family Impact Manager over all Parents for Parents Program throughout the state with Children's Home Society. And can you just tell us a little bit about Parents for Parents? So the Parents for Parents Program is designed to use parents that have lived child welfare experience to help other parents currently navigating a child welfare case. Um, and we do that through educational classes that we teach and facilitate. We provide resources, connect parents to different needs they might need. Uh, we meet them at their first court hearing and at subsequent hearings, and we provide peer support. Right. Like over the phone, phone mentoring. Awesome. Thank you so much. And then I was going to invite Andrea to introduce herself and where she's coming from. Yes, I am Andrea St. Clair, and I am the client care coordinator at A Positive Alternative, which is an outpatient treatment program in Seattle that offers an alternative. It's um, you know well-versed in the 12-step model, but I've added something to those who may have that as a foundation that are looking for some evidence-based new skills and tools to learn or for those where they know the 12-step model is not the right fit for them. And I do help people get placed in inpatient treatment programs, other programs uh, outside of ours, if ours is not the right fit, with finding a therapist, psychiatrist, naturopath, 
et cetera. And as a full disclosure, I was the wellness director for about 10 years at a positive alternative. And so I uh, am a big fan of the program. And then I want to introduce Alida Schuyler. Hi there. I'm Alida Schuyler. And um, I'm owner and director of Crossroads Recovery Coaching and uh, someone that has just read and studied addiction more or less obsessively for the last 30 plus years. And how I'm connected to Alida is that I consider her one of my main mentors in addictions. She's a phenomenal resource uh, on um, helping people navigate and get through um, and get get some relief from addictions. But what I also really appreciate uh, about Alida is that she really comes from a strengths-based model of helping people figure out what they personally need. And um, although I haven't done her recovery coaching, the people who I've met who have gone through her training program uh, are amazing recovery coaches. So, uh, so we have some re- really great resources. Ambrosia today has has been has offered to uh, talk about the 12-step perspective our 12-step programs that are available. Andrea is gonna talk about when, when people should consider inpatient or outpatient uh, recovery. And maybe we'll touch a little bit on uh, that there are alternatives to 12-step. And then Alida is going to um, talk about harm reduction, which is a really important and fairly new part of the discussion of, of treating and helping people with addictions. And so they're each going to give about a five minute um, little insert about that. And then we're going to do, I have some questions for them so you can hear some comparison contrast. And then we're going to hopefully have time for Q&A. Ambrosia, would you mind sort of kicking us off and give us some information about what 12-step is and how it might play into addiction, help with addictions, and uh, so that people can just know a little more about that. Yeah, so um, there's lots of different branches of 12-step, you know, it, it, uh, 12-step options out there for people, depending on like what might work for best for them if they choose that. Um, I know there's like Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, there's Overeaters Anonymous, Gambling Anonymous, Sex Anonymous. Um, I know there's so many more. Marijuana Cocaine Anonymous. Marijuana Anonymous, right. Um, and, uh, and then there's like also, um, 12 step for people who might've grew up with, um, parents that were experiencing times in addiction. I'm trying to remember all those like adult children of alcoholic, Al-Anon, Al-Anon, like there is, um, yeah, there, there's a whole gamut of help out there for people. I am a person who participates in a 12-step program locally, and how that has been, how I feel like for myself that is helpful is not only does it give me some camaraderie with people that might be struggling with similar things, it also gives me mm-hmm. access to people who might have went through things that I might face and I could get suggestions on ways to navigate that. It gives me something to be accountable to. I get to choose a sponsor for myself and work the steps, which is really just an unlayering of where I was, where I don't want to continue being, you know, maybe uh, unlayering some trauma and why 
I might find myself using something outside of myself to change the way I feel. It is, it for me, it's really helped with growing into a new person and kind of cleaning up the wreckage of my past and noticing my patterns. I'm also somebody that sought outside help. So I needed a counselor to untangle some of that trauma as well. And I've con- I continue to gain freedom from that. And I see that work for a number of people. I think it's really important that like before COVID, we used to hug because, right, that releases that oxytocin, I think it's called, right? If we have a long hug with somebody. And I feel like when I'm coming out of an addiction, like I need more of that um, than ever. And it's going to be really weird to come back together and be like, I don't know if I want to hug yet, you know, Uh, I'll hug within my family. But there's also oxytocin just getting together with a group, a safe group. Boom. See, I didn't yeah, know that. Boom. Okay. Well, see. are so important. <laughs> yeah. I also know there's like 12 steps that are that include faith-based stuff for people. So celebrate recovery options out there. Yeah. Can you so since we're not going to meetings anymore, ha, have 12 step moved online? Yes. yes. So a really <laughs> interesting thing that is kind of blowing me away and I hope in some way post-COVID we continue to do some platforms online through Zoom because I could literally, I haven't done this yet, but I've seen other people doing it. I could choose to hop on a Scotland meeting, for example, and participate in their meeting online in my little Spokane apartment (laughs) and just have a completely different perspective. And it's so cool to do that or, you know, it's posted online, so like locally here anyways, one would search AA Spokane and uh, go to the meeting schedule and it would show you all the Zoom links so you can just join. Same with NA, it's nuana.org and there's all kinds of um, Zoom meetings at scheduled times and you can just hop on one. So I also can hop on ones that I normally wouldn't be able to have access to, you know, um, because of driving there or whatever. It's just, that's kind of cool. Um, I have seen that be both a good thing and a hard thing. It kind of really, much like Dr. Allett and I had talked about a couple of weeks ago, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. And in this isolation, I am thriving. (laughs) But that is not the experience I'm seeing like universally across the board with people experiencing some time in addiction. Um, I know like relapse is up and the hugs and the in-person connection is, has people struggling and, you know, uh, they're looking forward to meetings in person again. Yeah. (laughs) And, and for people, um, who are wondering if they are, if alcohol or uh, marijuana or something has, has gotten into their brain and is in charge of it, like it's a resource that they can reach out to right now. Yes, it's a resource you can reach out to right now. And like a person doesn't have to decide before they hop on a Zoom meeting, like, am I an addict? Am I an alcoholic? Is marijuana, you know, am I overusing marijuana? A person could just hop on and be like, I'm exploring if this might be right for me. Um, And that's okay. okay. I don't get to choose. I don't get to tell anyone if like label anyone. That's for the individual to explore and decide for themselves. So thanks for that uh, brief summary. We're going to go a little deeper in a few minutes, but I'm going to move on. We're going to move on to Andrea, who's going to tell us a little bit about 
outpatient and possibly inpatient and like who would think about doing that and why and sure. um, and what maybe maybe a little bit to what to look for so I, I would say the way I usually characterize it and it's often during that first phone call I can begin to ascertain the magnitude of the problem is this something that can be safely addressed on an outpatient basis or does this person need a higher level of care? And of course, there are all kinds of you know, diagnostic criteria and ways of ascertaining that through ASAM and that kind of thing. But I'm just deeply listening and I'm bearing those things in mind. And I'll often explain to people, I give a little analogy like, well, going to an inpatient program is kind of like if you wanted to learn a foreign language and you went to an immersion program so that you're immersed in that 24 seven, you're living and breathing recovery work around the clock and you have support around the clock. So it's a very structured environment. It's cloistered, it's safe. So if someone, for example, you know, is living in a home where they really won't be able to be substance free or they just can't stop enough long enough to get into an outpatient program, then an inpatient program would be indicated. And then I also say to people, and this is my my philosophy that where the rubber hits the road is when you come home from that because when you're spared your daily structures when your environment is very contained and controlled when you have help around the clock it's quite different and then you come back home and so I feel that the aftercare piece is crucial and it's a piece that doesn't always get addressed well when someone's leaving an inpatient program. And I think it's really critical. So the more solid that is, the better the outcome for that individual. So I encourage people really to step right into a good solid aftercare program that can include and probably ideally an intensive outpatient program, sober support meetings that work for them. You know, just having a great kind of safety net for yeah. when they come home. So if somebody opts to go inpatient for, and usually it's about 28 to 40 days, but there are longer programs out there, depending on often the level of trauma yes. that is uh, uh, behind the, the addictive pattern. So then they could come home to a plan that could include a structured outpatient. Yes. So, so that's like a, a organization that uh, is structuring the classes Yes. For, the, for that person, or they could go into the anonymous and free 12-step uh, program. Yeah, I really recommend both, and there are a lot of sober support meetings um, that are not 12-step oriented for those who are interested. We have, like up here in Washington State, we have Northwest Buddhist Recovery, there's been Refuge Recovery, those are kind of mindfulness-oriented, Buddhist-oriented, there's Smart Recovery, that's a kind of a more rational approach for those where the 12-step meetings are not. People also do a combination of all of these. And that's another, I would say, you know, bonus of being in an intensive outpatient program is you can explore a lot of those resources while you're getting adequate help. And I would say ideally, if people can do that, that's the best combination. So we'll put links to all of those alternatives that we can, we can get our hands on in the post notes. Uh, because I think it's important to have lots of different uh, options to explore depending on what your preference is. But I think that that, that I think knowing the spectrum of services out there is really helpful for people taking the step forward to see if they want to address it. 
Absolutely. And the other thing I would add to that is I, again, personal bias, think it's crucial to have family involved if there is family so that they're getting support and education and information so that they can most effectively support their loved one while taking good care of themselves. So there's Al-Anon when we're talking about the 12-step model and then craft is, is really great. And Smart Recovery offers the friends and family Yep. free support group, but it, they're working through a workbook. It's often facilitated by a therapist. And because that's the other thing about leaving inpatient and then you step back into your system. And if, if not everyone in that system has been getting help, that can be very challenging. Nice. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. And now we're going to hear about harm reduction uh, from, from Alida. Hi there. Uh, so before I just say anything, I'll just say I'm one of those people that loves 12-step and loves harm reduction. And so, because a lot of times you get sort of pinned in a box that says, oh, if you're t harm reduction, then you don't like 12 steps and vice versa. But that's not true with me. <laughs> so what, what I like about uh, harm reduction, one is that it, it is very honest, it's compassionate, it's kind. There's a, there's a nice uh, video on YouTube called Transformations. If you type in harm reduction and transformations, there's a nice hour long thing and you'll get a tour of New York uh, harm reduction, people doing all sorts of things. You know, but, but one of the reasons that I think harm reduction is a missing piece is because as it is now, the 12-step programs are all abstinence-based. And abstinence is not really the first, people aren't, typically ready for abstinence when they first think they might have a problem. But there's very, very little help for people early along. I wanted to learn how to drink properly starting at age 11 uh, and spent years trying to figure out how to drink properly. If I had had anybody who knew anything about harm reduction, I would have gotten some information that could have been helpful to me. I also think some of the things that I chose to do before I knew that word were actually harm reduction oriented and in many ways may have saved my life. So harm reduction these days, you know, it uh, people associate with uh, needle exchanges and that kind of thing, but they also do, they really aren't necessarily drug oriented. They also do work with sex workers and all kinds of things that uh, can, can cause harm. So, so it has it has both a, a really huge public health aspect where they're uh, working on policy and drug laws and and all of that kind of thing, uh, and in the last twenty years or so, um, harm reduction psychotherapy has been developed. So, one-on-one -on -one models of working with somebody. One of the things I like about them is they recognize that addiction occurs in a context and they think that context is important. And so if you want to come in and talk about your home or your family or your spouse or your mate or, you know, they're saying you, you don't even have to talk about drugs. You, we will help you however you want help. And so, you know, to, to find a, a woman who is saying, you know, my, my man shoots me up every day, but I want to learn how to do it myself because I don't like being dependent on him in that way. Well, there are not very many places that are willing to do that kind of thing, but that's the sort of thing that they would do. They would, because they want people to shoot up safely if they're going to use IV drugs. So there's a great deal of, of emphasis on, on all of the things that you can do to be safer. 
one of the concepts that I think is fairly simple is one of the early things that came out in the 1960s. It's called, it's Zinberg's model of set, setting and drug. And so this was uh, 60s, uh, Haight-Ashbury, uh, beginning to try to help people not flip out when they took drugs or recognize that there's a big difference between speed, as it was called then, methamphetamines and marijuana. There's, you know, so, but set setting and drugs, so set is, uh, stood for mindset. It's about, you know, are you in a good mood? Uh, do you have any pre-existing conditions that might get in the way of your having a successful experience with this drug? So all the things that are unique to that individual would come under set. It used to stand for mindset. Uh, then there's setting. Where are you using? With whom are you taking drugs? Are you drinking in an alley or shooting up in an alley? If you are, chances are you're not going to use the safety precautions that you might do at home. You might not clean your kit or your injection site if you're trying to get high before the police find you. So, so uh, and then the other is the drug itself. And so I, I think nicotine is a good example. Nicotine can be taken through cigarettes, vaping, chewing gum, patches, and lozenges. And there's a difference in how safe those are. Mm -hmm. so, so it's just basically saying to try, see if you can make the best choices that you can given the drugs that you're using. So um, as an, as an yeah. example, going back to alcohol, which I think is going to be used in larger quantities in, the, in this moment, is drinking 3% drinking cider beer is different than drinking, drinking vodka. Absolutely. Different blood alcohol. I mean, you'll have different blood alcohol levels drinking, you know, those two different things. One's going to get you drunk much more quickly than the other. And, and, and the vodka will be a lot more dangerous because of that. Um, it depends on what you're thinking about. I mean, I thought wine was dangerous because it had the worst hangover. So I thought <laughs> vodka was better than wine because I didn't get go. a hangover. So it just depends on how you look at it. Yeah. Do you have uh, anything else you want to add before we move to? No, I, I think we can move. Okay. Those are some overviews. And so we're going to do in the same order, but I, I want, there, I have three questions that I want each of the panelists to have a chance to answer. And I'm happy to read it three times, just for those who, for the panelists, but uh, we'll start with ambrosia. How do you recognize when the brain is starting to wire in a pattern of addiction? May that be for alcohol, drugs, screens, online shopping, uh, exercise, sugar or overeating, porn, hoarding, et cetera. The question often gets phrased, well, how do I know if I have an addiction? And I think that the, the research out there is really clear that, that it, the addictions are a brain disorder. And so I really want to name that it's not a person disorder, that it's a brain disorder. They, you know, we, we say that I broke my femur. We don't say I'm broken when we go see, we come back from skiing, right? Our, we're not completely broken as a person. And, and it's the same with addictions. It's that the, the brain is get using a substance or a behavior in a way to modify emotions. And and so, but like how as a person might somebody, might, might you recognize that that pattern's starting and that, that you might want to be curious about it. So Ambrosia. Yeah. So I can tell you, I have this thing where I feel like I, when I relapsed before, 
I relapsed in behaviors way before I ever picked the drug or alcohol back up. And so cues for me to know that I'm kind of heading that way is I'm not taking care of myself in the same way that I have been. Um, I might cuss more. Um, that's kind of a cue to maybe reach out and get some support. My daughter's like, you're a little off the hook, mom. Um, <laughs> I might be having experiencing sleep issues. Um, I'm not eating right. I'm really going to that sugar, you know, like I'm obsessing over it. When my thoughts are consumed by something outside of myself a huge percentage of the time and I'm seeking ways to numb myself, that's like a danger cue for me. I currently have this email thing that tells me how much time I'm spending doing certain things and that can be a great cue about my online behavior Yeah, <laughs> because I can also um, use screen time too much. Uh, of course in this pandemic I'm going to give myself the kindness that of course I'm on screens too much right now. Another cue for me I don't know, like still this parents, I kind of just start to see their behaviors and choices and thought patterns, like kind of going back to some older stuff when maybe I had seen them reaching a different level and it's just kind of, but I mean, some of this can happen that, um, and it doesn't mean that we're going to end up drinking or using or. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm stuck at home and I've been a social, let's say I've been a social drinker my whole life and you know, like two or three days a week, I would have a couple of glasses of wine and now I'm having wine every night and, mm -hmm. and a couple of glasses and maybe sometimes a bottle because like I'm at home. No, you know, like no designated driver problem, right? Yeah. And I was seeing those behaviors that you were talking about when you were sober, but you were starting to lean back towards using again. Do you think that applies to the person? Because sometimes people don't think that that substance is causing the lack of sleep and the, the yelling at their kids and their, you know, because that was last night. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not like the substance abuse, substance use disorder professional. No, no, no. I know there's some kind of a scoring that happens. I might be saying this incorrectly. That kind of indicates like, is our home life being negatively affected by our increase in drinking? Is our, is there legal stuff going on now? Is there, you know, work issues happening? Like I'm not showing up to work on time. I just got rode up. Like, yeah, I feel like those could be indicators that I might want to explore. Like, could this be, I'm over drinking or could have. Yeah. And I appreciate that you give both perspectives and I kind of pulled you into that second perspective, but that like watching the, the texture of your life is a really good indicator if you're doing okay. Yeah. And if, if you're I not haven't smoked okay. in a year and I'm all of a sudden smoking, I at least would want to know like, did something recently happen that triggered me? Did like, why am I reaching for this nicotine? Or it, during this thing, like I hadn't had sugar for two years, right? Um, that was a, a path I was on. Uh, I have had donuts a few times and what was the other thing? I don't remember. There was something else with sugar in it. So like I'm even experiencing a backwards into some old behaviors during this lockdown and COVID and access to just not as healthy of foods. 
even though I'm home and theoretically could be making the healthiest of foods, I'm not making those choices all the time. So I'm relapsing on sugar currently, intermittently. And I appreciate that you're like, huh, look at that. That's happening. And you know, like there, it, there's curiosity about it and not a lot of judgment, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's the other thing that I think shows up is the judgment really starts going when, when there's something we're unconscious about. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask Andrea the same question. When somebody calls into you, how do you recognize if they might, their brain's starting to get into the pattern of addiction versus like, is this problem or, you know, like how do, how do you suss that out? Like what, what are you curious about? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when you asked the question, I was just reflecting a little and thinking, well, you know, not every person who's exposed to a substance or tries a substance develops a problem with it. But I know from interviewing, you know, countless people that it's often described like, wow, my, my brain just lit up when I tried that, or that's the first time in my life I felt normal or, you know, like I remember it was myself. I was 15 I was having eye surgery and they gave me a shot of Demerol and I went oh my gosh this is the best I have ever felt now not everybody would feel that way and some people feel horrible from that you know but I think that tells us and they've done all those studies um you know like with Vietnam vets who were using opiates in Vietnam but they came home and they were fine most of them you know so there is something unique I think about about particular brains and we also at a positive alternative call it a form of dangerously misguided self-care which to me implies we have these very legitimate needs most of us haven't had an opportunity i call the program going to grad school for your inner life because most of us didn't get to learn well how do i take care of myself on the inside how do i face you know we know stress is the number one trigger but painful emotions, trauma history, anxiety, depression, all these things so that you know, people are doing the best they can to feel better and to manage. And so when I'm talking with people, I'll, I'll often say, you know, I've come to think of, I'll just use alcohol in this example, as a wolf in sheep's clothing because it will promise you like feeling a little anxious, I'm an anti-anxiety. You know, feeling down, I'm an antidepressant, can't sleep, I'm a sleep aid. And then in fact, we know, well, it's acting as a depressant on the brain. It's, you can have a big kickback of increased anxiety. And while you may fall asleep or pass out, you'll have disrupted sleep. So it's that, you know, Amy, our wonderful supervisor, who Kristen knows, calls alcohol a jealous lover that wants you all to itself. And I would say those are the things, you know, to start to notice, like, well, am I thinking about this? you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon at work and I'm really anticipating it and I can't wait to get home. That preoccupation, you know, is it affecting my job performance but I'm still doing it? You know, all those kind of criteria type questions. But I would say, you know, if that's become an area of real preoccupation and anticipation, I think there's kind of a trance state and the brain chemistry is changing even before you ingest the substance or do the behavior because you're just looking so forward to it that your brain chemistry is already changing. So I think that's all in keeping with your philosophy of what's going on in the brain. Yeah. Thank you. How about Alida? Do you have anything that you want to add or how do you? Uh, Yeah, I do. So, so there, uh, Richard Feynman, who is a physicist and won the Nobel Peace Prize or one of those big prizes, I can't remember which one, 
in the middle in this book he's got two lines he he used to go into bars uh and sit and work on his you know things he was working on work out lots of math lots of math equations he said and one day he was walking down the street and he got the urge to go in a bar and he's like why you know i don't have a notebook with me he gave, that was the last time he decided to never have another drink because he recognized that that was coming from a different place in his brain so it, it was some years before I heard about corticotriptan factor. You know, we've got a brain that probably starts at a deficit. If you've had trauma, you probably have a deficit of uh, neurotransmitters to begin with. You take a drug, it's like, oh my God, this is the best thing. I mean, my body thinks speed is the best thing. It thinks opioids are the best thing, alcohol is the best thing, and marijuana is the best thing. It, it really does. What I know is when the brain actually has what it needs, it doesn't have cravings. But what happens is when addiction sets in, they call it uh, flipping a switch. You start getting corticotriptan factor uh, released and corticotriptan factor increases cravings and increases risk. And so mm -hmm. what I know is it's, it's coming from an addictive place. If, if it isn't a conscious choice that I've made, if it's like, oh, I just saw a billboard and now I'm salivating, that's not really f coming from anywhere but my limbic system. So, so addiction's wired into that part of your brain, which is what's so hard about it. It's not coming from, you know, your cerebral cortex and, and your cerebral cortex isn't going, well, I think what I'll do tonight is have this. Most of those urges and cravings are coming from a whole different place, which is what makes it very, very hard to do anything about it until you're already in trouble, I would say. Yeah, that's very, that, that, I love all those perspectives that like, I think that that gives us lots of information to just be curious about what might be happening for ourselves as things arise. Thank you so much. So the second question that I wanna hear from all of you is that if a person is beginning to suspect that they have a, have a problem, where do they reach out for help? And some of this was sort of mentioned in your intros, but I wanna be really specific. Like here is somebody sitting at home and they're part of their, their cortex, their curious part of their cortex is saying, I might need help and I'm stuck at home and I have the internet, but the, it's overwhelming. Like what is one or two concrete steps that somebody who's just, you know, every part of their brain, except for this one little piece of territory is going, don't do it. And everybody, everything else is like, maybe. And how would they reach out for the next, the next help? And, and it might be, here's a site or here's a book or like, what, what would you say to that person who's in that moment? And we're going to have Ambrosia go first again. <laughs> okay. So I interestingly just literally Googled, like, how would I know if I thought I might be experiencing an addiction and psychology today has a like really good six signs that that might be where a person is sitting. And it's interesting that it kind of talks about the reward response. Like, does this make me feel better? Do I feel more in control? Do I now all of a sudden feel normal? I remember the first time I did meth and I did it intravenously, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel normal, which was really scary and led me to very dark places. You know, it also talks about on here, like, has it disrupted my life and relationships? And I know we've already kind of talked um, about that. So how would they, somebody get to a 12 step group? Oh, so to get to a 12-step group, um, 
here in Spokane anyways, I would just like Google Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, then my city, and it should pop up like that area's site and you would click on it and click on like meeting schedule and it should list all the meetings that are available in somebody's area. Um, some of those might be very large and vast and meetings going on like all the time. And for smaller areas, it might be once or twice a week. Um, and are, am I going to find links to these Zoom meetings? Because yes. like, so, so like, share. yep, it, the ones that are doing Zoom now, not every single meeting that exists is on the online platform right now but a lot are, and literally you open up that meeting schedule that usually would just give you the details to go in, in person where the address is, you know, some of the, an hour and a half meeting, whether or not you can bring kids or whatever. Now it's just literally the Zoom link and you click on it and, you know, if it's at that time, so like a 7 p.m. women's meeting, I would click on it, it's 7 p.m. and it would take me right into the meeting. Now, am I gonna have to put my real name? No, you could sign that up and put, you know, dynamic brains. If you wanted and, to. And am I going to have to turn on my video? No, actually. You can call in and not do a video and do it completely anonymous. And so um, I don't have to say anything? No. I could just listen. Mm -hmm. Now, I will caution that sometimes there are meeting formats where they do something called a tag, where they will then, you know, tag people to talk. Thankfully, I have not seen that platform used a lot anymore because I feel like... But I could just say... I pass. Like, oh, thank you. Yep. I'm, just, I I'm, I'm new and I don't really want to talk to anybody. Just here exploring. Boundary, that would be respected. Absolutely. Yep. Thank okay. you, but no, thank you. Okay. Awesome. Andrea, uh, or Andrea, sorry. If I wanted to go to an inpatient or outpatient program, should I just get online and find some something online? I think that's a little risky, as I pointed out earlier, because most websites look good. So I think it's helpful if you can kind of a point person, who, somebody like me, or an interventionist, or even a person's own physician or therapist. I would say, you know, the referrals we get come from people finding us online. So that certainly can be a good way to you know, make an initial contact and from therapists and physicians. So, you know, if your doctor knows and recommends a program to you, you can probably rely on that, that it's probably reputable and clinically sound. So they'll have your contact information. We, we can post that. Absolutely, because I'm always happy to help anybody find a good direction to go in. And then we can also post, is, is there uh, credentialing around interventionists? Or is there an organization there's an organization, I believe. There's, there's some different resources of like consultants who will help with that, who are knowledgeable, case manager case organizations who will help you find viable treatment, solid treatment. I have, you know, a couple of colleagues who I turn to on a regular basis, run it by them and, you know, make we, sure. We'll put together some, some, some contacts that yeah. will post notes. So, so if somebody's sitting there and being like, hmm, I think I really want to do inpatient right now because this is getting, and I like the idea of like just doing it 24 hours seven for and getting really educated on it. Uh, they can contact it or uh, in finding local uh, outpatient programs. Right, and there are treatment placement specialists. So, you know, someone could contact me and I could direct them to yep. those people who can help them and explore and look at all the elements, you know, like 
is the program, like I said, number one, clinically sound? Is it financially feasible? Does it resonate with that person's own philosophy? You know, help them ascertain all those points. Do it insurance benefit estimate for them, all those kinds of things. And, I, and I'm going to have to agree because what I, I have had some programs that I've really liked referring to for a while. And then I refer and then people come back and I'm like, what is, you know, and so programs change. So I think I really agree with you in that, like somebody who's knowledgeable about what the status of the programs are currently is really the best place to get into an outpatient or inpatient program. Yeah. And if you have an advocate like that, someone who's helping you locate and get admitted to this program or a treatment placement specialist, then they can follow through that whole treatment episode and make sure that the quality of care is on board and the person's getting the services that they were promised. And I think that's very helpful. I think in our whole medical world in general, it's very good to have an advocate. Yeah. And then Alida, is there anything else? Oh, I was just going to say a couple of books came to mind. One is, it's an older book, but Charlotte Castle, Many Roads, One Journey, because that gives quite a, a wide range. And then Sober for Good. So Charlotte Castle is Many Roads, One Journey, and then Anne Fletcher, I believe, is Sober for Good. And that 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 actually does kind of encompass harm reduction. It, you know, it gives a broad range of how someone might define their own recovery and sobriety. Thank you. And Alida, how about you? Like, here I am. I am clear I do not want to do abstinence, but I am also clear that the what I am currently doing is not safe or is just too much for me. Where like where where would I start for harm reduction? I don't know that people are gonna start with harm reduction unless they've already been educated in some way. So Well they found this podcast. Oh I see. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well I, I all I know is I wasn't willing to go anywhere until I had done a lot of reading because that's sort of my default. Uh, I read Addictive Drinking, which it described what an AA meeting was like. Uh, I, if I hadn't read that book a year or two before I went to an AA meeting, I wouldn't have walked in there. Well, I might have on that particular occasion. I think a good resource that people at home had, during this period of time Reddit has an amazing number of what they call subreddits, and they have one called Stop Drinking. It's probably got over 200,000 members in it, uh, and, and a wide variety of people describing where they are, what they're trying to do. It's, it is obviously a stop drinking. It's an abstinence one, but <clears throat> there are people who are, will write in and say, I've been hanging out here for four years, and I finally had my first days without alcohol. So you can read about a lot of other people's experience. Uh, they also have subreddits. They have one called Leaves for uh, Abstinence from Marijuana. They have one called Petioles, which is kind of a cannabis management, sort of more medical management approach. Um, I would just suggest that you, you really look at the lay of the land, because most people who have gotten uh, far enough into addiction to need help don't have much of a resource network mm -hmm. and and so that you know that's the kind of mm -hmm. thing I would say just just start just start somewhere and get and educate yourself about what your choices are and do you have some favorite books on harm reduction well for drinking I love uh, William R. Miller's controlling your drinking I wish I'd gotten it for my 12th birthday because I would have had a completely different experience instead of trying to figure out if I should stop drinking between the fifth and the sixth drink or between the eighth and the 
you know, I would have understood that as a female, I don't process the same way men do. I shouldn't be trying to keep up with them. So that's a very good book. I like Changing for Good, which was uh, Prochaska's first description of the stages of change. That was helpful to me even later to realize that, you know, because in some ways, like the push is that you have to leap into action. All of a sudden, I go straight from addiction into signing, turning my will and my life over to a 12-step program for the rest of my life and quitting. No, there's really a lot of, there's a lot of phases that you're going to go through, but chances are before that either works or, or you get to that place. So understanding a change process. I think anybody who wants to work with other people in that realm uh, could read motivational interviewing. It's based on uh, mm -hmm. the stages of change model. It's language that uh, is helpful. And, you know, one of the fun things in there, they said the meaner uh, uh, an addiction counselor is to somebody, research has shown the more that person is drinking a year out. So, so the hard, ed hard edge of, you know, you got to do this. Oh, that just backs people into corners and they, and they will, they, some of them never will come back. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so I think it's hard to find harm reduction resources unless you live in an urban area. Yeah. Um, one of the, every one of the students I have trained got some introduction to harm reduction. Some of them take to it and see uh, begin to see how it shows up in so many ways yeah. um, other people are other people i've had people just drop out of the entire program right then and there because they think i'm anti-12 step or something so, because i taught them that <laughs> if i if i'm somebody and 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 the idea of harm reduction is really resonating with me they could contact you and 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 get information from you or get a referral from you or work with you. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and any of the above. Yeah. Um, and, and the students that I've trained, some of them have interests in sex addiction. Some of them are interested in disordered eating and eating disorders. And I mean, so they, they have a lot of different areas in which, and so if you want somebody who works only with women or, you know, uh, or a man who works with men with sex addiction, but they could contact you and you could help them find that's what i'm saying i would help them find a, a someone who awesome. does that awesome yeah. so we um we have had such good information but i want to make sure that we leave time for q a and so i i i had one more question which 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 was just sort of um tipping the scale on does self-care count and in terms around a protein, sleep, and exercise. And, and, and that's really a, a very biased question. So uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna let the, the, uh, the people who have come to participate to see if they have any questions because I want to get their questions in and, um, and we'll go from there. So Natasha, have, has anybody put any questions in the chat box? No, not yet, but feel free to go ahead and type it in. I think in part, we've had such great conversation that's getting into a lot of, you know, I think really good initial questions that yeah. that, that might be part of it. But if anyone has something yeah. that they'd like to ask or questions about a specific approach or program or for one of our panelists, um, feel and free it, to go ahead. In the meantime, whilst people are typing that mm -hmm. in, uh, Kristen, I'd like to speak to the eating, sleeping, and exercising. Okay. I think those are absolutely essential, important things for people to do if they want to experience good health. 
uh, and, and to feel good. I also think they're an insufficient for many people who have used drugs because often when you use drugs, you have damaged part of your body. People who use opioids have uh, damaged their endocrine system. They no longer make uh, natural endorphins anymore. They, they don't have much in the way of sex hormones. Uh, they, some of them are going to need ex, you know, external sources, whether they're pharmaceutical or whatever, in order to, in order to uh, feel anything resembling uh, an acceptable sense of normality. People who have used amphetamines for too long. I mean, the, 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 I think it was the Japanese found that five years later, they could still find an excess of hypervigilant cells. That which are overmade. So, you know, it, it's not, it's, I think that sometimes, and maybe alcohol is not one of the easier drugs in that way. If you quit drinking genuine, genuinely, you tend to feel better, but that's not always true with other drugs. And so I, I, I just don't want people to think that they are a failure if they can't stay sober just because they're eating and exercising and sleeping now. They may need some other form of help. Right. That's my two cents worth. Right. And what I have seen is sometimes addiction programs don't adequately address eating, eating, eating frequently and sleeping, getting adequate sleep and, uh, and getting exercise. It's, it's just sort of do the program and, uh, and, and you spend way too much time in your limbic system. Yeah. Yeah. We did I have think the whole post-acute withdrawal thing is something that's not dealt with very well. I mean, the, the, the residual effects of taking drugs aren't, aren't dealt with very well. I'll yeah. be quiet now. Yeah. I do actually have a couple Part questions. Um, oh, good. One participant said that she wanted to share a quote, chance favors the prepared mind by <laughs> Louis Pasteur, and one is curious what the panelists think of that. And then the, I'll just read the second question and then maybe we can just, um, I know we have about five minutes left. So um, the second question is whether, is there any recommendations on, I, I guess, on how a partner of someone who has a functional alcohol addiction uh, can address that or deal with that? I can answer that. I would recommend a book called Beyond Addiction. And the subtitle, I believe, is How Science and Kindness mm -hmm. Help People Change. And it is evidence-based. It comes from the Kraft model. That's Dr. Robert Meyer's work. He's a clinical psychologist out of the University of New Mexico. And the Center for Motivation and Change in New York has a great website. And they have a guide for parents and a guide for partners or spouses. And it's a highly respectful model that's based on communication skills and kind of reinforcing behaviors that you want to see and how to care for yourself in the face of the challenging aspects of it or the ones you don't want to participate in. And Dr. Myers wrote a book also, it's not as well written as Beyond Addiction, but it's called Get Your Loved Ones Sober. And the subtitle, every parent or spouse I've ever spoken to laughs when I tell them the subtitle, Alternatives to Nagging, Pleading, and Threatening. Because they've all tried them unsuccessfully. So th those are two books that I, I would recommend for partners or spouses or parents. Thank you. Any, anybody else would like to comment on, on that? Well, I just uh, want to say that shame has never helped me make the choice to change any behaviors that I am choosing to do. 
Um, and it actually corrodes the part of my brain, like Brene Brown says, it corrodes the part of our brain that helps us think about a solution around something, you know, like it, it keeps you stuck. It doesn't help motivate change. Um, I might suggest that if a, a partner wants some support around from a 12 step perspective, you know, they could explore um, the Al-Anon potentially, you know, um, just to go take a no thank you bite, even if you don't ever want to go back again, like it might be worth exploring if that's something that could be helpful um, for them. I, f I did Al-Anon uh, probably for five years. My, I'm, I'm the, the sober child and the sober, <laughs> the goody two shoes. And, um, uh, and I found Al-Anon not only helpful in terms of dealing with family members who had addictions, but, but just in terms of having really good skills and boundaries in life. And one of my best friends also did Al-Anon in her 20s. And I have to say, like, our 20s were really different than our friends because we did Al-Anon. And, and not that we were good at boundaries then, but at least we were thinking about them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and so, um, you know, uh, making sure, like, I like the, the phrase of t making sure your side of the fence is cleaned up before you go and clean up somebody else's side of the fence. Mm -hmm. and getting your own support first. Um, you know, also if a person finds themselves in a position where maybe they're taking too, on too much of somebody else's addiction, uh, you know, I know it's, it can be seen as a negative word or like I don't want to explore that because that sounds like horrible, but Codependency Anonymous could be something yep. to explore too because that can help strengthen my boundaries if I'm seeking help. Um, it can help me know where I stop and someone else starts and help me get strong, which is really all I can control anyways. I can't make anyone else do anything. I've tried with teenagers, I've tried with my dog, like it just backfires. So mm -hmm. um, all I can do is change me and often it's interesting how things change when I change me. And there's a couple of good codependent, uh, dependent, codependency books that we'll put on the list as well. Uh, um, I believe Pat Denning may have a new book about families and that kind of thing. And she has written two of the uh, major books on harm reduction. So it's, it's a harm reduction approach to nice. uh, spouses and children. And, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Other uh, smart recovery meeting, Kristen, the smart recovery meeting for friends and family that I mentioned. Oh, yeah. I, I believe those are taking place by Zoom right now. And then they do have a good workbook. So that, I know locally we have one that's yeah. happening by Zoom. So I can get you that info. That would be great. And just because, oh. oh, I'm just going to say uh, one of my students wrote a book called Balm. She developed something called Be a Loving Mirror. And mm. she has a lot of fans and from it. So um, I haven't read the whole book. So I can't. Yeah, anyway. but you'll give us the reference. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you the reference. I would. Yeah, yeah we'll just post. We'll ju we're just going to post a whole bunch of references because, as it was said earlier, like, you know, it it takes a lot of preparation to to before before you take a step and and having lots of different re references and options. So in that moment of like, okay, I need, you know, this 
this has gotten too tight and I'm willing to move my foot forward in a small way, like there's something there and there'll just be a list for people to, to do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so is there anything else that we... What about the quote that came the in as a question? Chance favors the prepared mind. Um, and if, uh, if, if the question was just, what do you think <laughs> of that? I'm in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Well, for those of you who have joined us, thank you so much for, for joining us uh, for a live connectors meeting. We will, we're going to make this into both a podcast and a, a, put it on our YouTube channel for Protein for All. And the YouTube channel is Protein for All, and the podcast is Optimizing Brains and Bodies. If you haven't already signed up, or you can go to our newsletter and get all that information. And uh, and and uh, to to all my really good friends and resources, thank you so much for showing up. I really appreciate that. And uh, come back next month. We're going to talk about the vagus nerve. If you're interested. <laughs>